Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Today's scripture taken from Matthew chapter 20, verses 16 to 28. So the last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus predicts his death a third time. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's son came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down and asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking. Jesus said to them, Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord lord it it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Thank you, Priya. Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you. If we haven't met, hopefully we can after the service. Um, So as Neil said, this is the... Ninth week in our series, uh, which we're calling Encounters with Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And each week we look at a passage where Jesus encounters a person and we look to answer a big question of modern culture. So today we're looking at a very famous story where Jesus encounters Zebedee's sons, James and John, they're called, and their mother. um, And they're seeking a huge question. And the question is, how do I find contentment? It has been said that we live in an age of anxiety and discontent. Despite our great wealth and opportunities and experience and technology and comforts, there's never been, they say, a more discontent age and a more anxious generation. A recent phenomenon in response to this problem of discontent in our culture is a phenomenon called minimalism, decluttering. Removing everything from your life that is not valuable and using your time and your energy for things that remain. In a recent Netflix documentary on minimalism, the opening quotes are as follows. So much of our life is lived in a fog of automatic habitual behavior. We spend so much of our time on the hunt, but nothing ever quite does it for us. And we get so wrapped up in the hunt that it makes us kind of miserable. Dan Harris, author of 10% Happier. I had everything I ever wanted. Everyone around me said, you're successful. But really, I was miserable. 
there was this gaping void in my life. So I tried to fill the void the same way many people do, with stuff. Attempting to buy my way to happiness. I was living for stuff, but I wasn't living at all. Ryan Nicomedes, Nicodemus, sorry, the minimalist. At that time, when pe- at, that, at a time when people in the West are experiencing the best standards of living in history, why is, why is it at the same time that there's so much, there's, there's such a longing for more? We are, we still feel restless. We're scratching and clawing for more. Dr. Rick Hansen, neuropsychologist, is minimalism? The answer to our discontent? Well, it's probably part of the answer. But as with all the answers that our secular culture gives us, they don't go deep enough. The focus is on the externals, decluttering the house, which I am partial to, (laughs) rather than the internals, decluttering the heart. The focus is always on the action. What can I throw away? rather than the motivation that never seems to be satisfied, this constant desire for more. And as ever, when our Lord Jesus deals with people who are discontent, his primary focus is always on the heart. It is our restless, discontent hearts that are the problem, and he wants to bring rest and satisfaction to our hearts. So today's story... How does it help us understand the path to contentment? If I'm counting correctly, there are 13 people in this story who are discontent. Did you spot them? Zebedee's sons, James and John. Their mother. And then there's 10 disciples who all come in verse 24 indignant that they weren't the ones that got to ask Jesus the question. They're mad with the other two for beating them to it. They're just, they're indignant, they're frustrated, they're jealous, they lack contentment. So what does this story teach us about the path to contentment? Three things. The path to contentment, our futile attempts to find contentment must be gently exposed by Jesus, verse 20 to 23. Our desires must be reordered by Jesus, verse 24 to 27. And our greatest love must be Jesus himself. Verse 28, once those three things happen, you will find contentment. The path to contentment, therefore, is not easy. It is not simple. It's often uncomfortable and painful. But that's one of the key points of today's passage. It is suffering that leads to glory. So firstly, our futile attempts to find contentment must be gently exposed by Jesus. This story and the story from last week of Matthew 19 of a rich young ruler are very exposing stories. And they're exposing stories because they reveal the deepest desires and ambitions and restlessness of the human heart, not just James and John and their mother and the 10 disciples and the rich young ruler. These stories reveal our hearts. It's our hearts that are restless that engage with these stories. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler last week who had it all, but it wasn't enough? He was young, he was rich, he was successful, he had power, he had wealth, he was moral, he was upright, he loved his neighbor as himself, but it wasn't enough. He wasn't enough. He felt he lacked something. Despite gaining the whole world, his heart was not satisfied. As has been pointed out, the cavern in his soul 
was infinitely deep and nothing could quite get to the depths of that cavern in his soul. He lacked assurance. He didn't know how to get eternal life. And Jesus exposed his heart, do you remember, that he loved money more than he loved God. His money hadn't given him the contentment he wanted. But do you remember how the story ends? As, Jesus, as, as Peter and the disciples are engaged, thinking, well, who, who then can be saved, they say. And, 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 and Peter goes, well, Lord, we've given up all this money to follow you. Like, what are we getting at the end? Do you remember that wonderful question? Do you remember the answer? Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus says, yes, there's suffering now. Yes, there's challenge now. But when my kingdom fully comes, when I return, when I renew all things, there'll be a throne for every disciple. Huh. What do we have in this story? James and John and their mother come saying, we want the best two thrones. If Jesus is promising thrones, I want the one on the right and the left for my children. One of my sons can be T-Shock, the other can be Tornister. Okay, Jesus can be T-Shock, I'll have Minister for Justice, you know? <laughs> James and John are trying to secure top spots in the eternal cabinet. Don't you find it's interesting that it's the mum that makes the request? Parents' ambitions for their children can be one of the things that cripple children's children and they grow up and they never feel good enough always inadequate under pressure and are never content in who they are because of a parent's ambition for them us parents must be very careful what we desire for our children we have a role in guiding and protecting our children and giving them wisdom and good values and we can have ambitions for them for sure but they need to come to Jesus for themselves to discover the life that he has for them we must not let our selfish ambition or failed sporting career pressurize and crush our children. Our children must know unconditional love and support, even if and especially if we have ambitions for them. And if you are a child, and maybe you felt the heavy pressure from your parent, then consider this story. Jesus hears the request of the mother, verse 20. But did you notice who he answers, verse 22? He answers the sons. Jesus is the one we all ultimately have to give our final answer to. The Bible says that, child, that children you owe your parents respect, must listen to their advice and honor their wisdom and experience and desires for your life, and that you must care for them as they get older. But as you grow up, you answer to Jesus, ultimately not your parents. Jesus wants to speak to you as a child. Jesus is the one to whom you owe your ultimate allegiance as you work out what it means to honor your father and your mother and respect their desires. Now, when I think about the mother's request and Jesus answering the two sons, and I think of the story of the rich young ruler last week and the story of James and John this week, I think of two of the big box office hits of the last seven or eight years. I think of two characters. One's called P.T. Barnum in The Greatest Showman, and the other one is called Alexander Hamilton in the musical. These two stories portray that you can have it all. You can achieve success by every measurement in this world and still not feel like you're successful 
enough. You have this deep inner drive and you never rest. These characters in these stories never rest. They're never content. As Jackman, P.T. Barnum sings, despite his miraculous rags to riches story and his great fame, he has this famous song. Well, actually, it's someone else in the, in the musical. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. It'll never be enough. Or as Hamilton found out on the way to writing himself into American history, sung both by himself and the two Schuyler sisters, he will never be satisfied. He will never be satisfied. Hamilton is a genius and he's restless and relentless. And he has an incessant need to rise up and not throw away his shot and be in the room where it happens. And some of you want to sing along right now. <laughs> P.T. Barnum has this incessant drive for success, which means both of them neglect what? Their relationships that are most important to them. And they both need to be taken back by their wives because they were never content in what they did have. They always feel, felt this need to rise up and, and, and never were satisfied. Friends, you only have to be human to know that the cavern in your soul is infinitely deep and nothing in this world will satisfy it. You only have to be human. We all say, if I just have, I'll be content. Next year when, I'll just be content. You see, contentment it always feels around the corner, doesn't it? It never feels now. So how does Jesus deal with our restless, ambitious, jealous, angry, and empty hearts? Well, he gently exposes them. Look how gentle Jesus is in this story. And it's always the case in the Gospels that Jesus calms the passion and relentlessness and ambition of our hearts, but he calms our hearts without crushing them. So verse 21, first of all, he hears the request of the mother. What, what do you want? Verse 22, when he hears the request, well, I want one of my sons and one at your right and your glory, he doesn't scold them. Did you notice that? Ah, oh, you stupid, selfish disciples and stupid mother. Why do you want my... He doesn't do that. He actually answers them on the basis of their request. He says, you want that level of glory? Are you willing to take that level of suffering? You see, the cup was a cup of suffering, and the Old Testament spoke of this cup that would come, and it would be ultimately the cup of martyrdom. As Jesus dies on a cross, he says, are you willing to drink the same cup that I'm going to drink? And they naively say, well, we are. And actually, Jesus says, you know what, one day you will. And James and John were both martyred. And, but martyrdom is the prerequisite to the highest seats in the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't reject their request for thrones. He clarifies and purifies it. So he hears the request. He doesn't scold them, but answers on the basis of their request. And then verse 24, when all the disciples are getting angry and jealous that they didn't get there first, he doesn't scold them and go, oh, you stupid, immature disciples. He doesn't point the finger and say, you're just as bad as those two. Well, they are. He gives them all a lesson. He says he gathers them together. And he says, let me teach you about leadership and discipleship and power and glory and what these thrones are for. These thrones aren't here to serve you. They're, if you get given a throne in the kingdom, it's to serve others. And he draws them deeper into their understanding of who he is and what it is to follow him. How gentle Jesus is with his people in their selfish, ambitious prayers and requests. 
and their jealous and angry objections to other people. He is so gentle. The book of Isaiah says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He is gentle and lowly of heart. And so, brothers and sisters, remember this is the disciples. This is Christians who have these selfish prayers. Jesus wants to hear our prayers, even our selfishly ambitious ones. He wants to hear them bizarrely. Isn't that amazing? When you have a very selfish, ambitious prayer, Jesus says, yeah, I want to hear it. And I want to engage with you on the basis of that prayer. So better to be honest than pretend, well, I'm super spiritual and I don't have any, I, I, I never want power and glory. You know, I'm really good. No, no, Jesus says, no, I know your heart. Now just come to me with it, would you? And I'll deal gently with it. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to mock you and scold you. I do have to expose it. I do have to change it. But I am gentle with your heart. Our futile attempts to find contentment outside of a relationship with Jesus must be heard by Jesus so he can change them. Secondly, our desires then must be reordered, verse 24 to 27. We reflected on this last week with the rich young ruler. This whole section in Matthew's gospel is about revealing how upside down and inside out the kingdom of God is and how the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world just don't quite agree and fit together. What the world values and champions is not really what Jesus values and champions. The children are in, we learned last week, but the rich young man is out. James and John make a mess of it with their request, but the next story, the two blind men get it right with their request. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over you in this story, but the son of man, he comes to serve and to give his life. See, the kingdom of God is upside down. The first to last and the last to first. The servant is the leader and the ruler is a slave. It's, it's upside down. It's inside out. It's not going, well, it's not about the political kingdoms of this world. It's I'm not out there. It's about the spiritual kingdom in the heart where Jesus wants to rule. It's upside down. It's inside out. And it's backwards, forwards. It's suffering now, glory then. It's not glory now. It's suffering now as a Christian and glory then. It's denying yourself now and you receive the rewards later. We must die to live. We must repent to be saved. We must serve to become great. If we must be known in our hearts to be helped. We must count this life as nothing if we want to inherit the next one. The kingdom of God is upside down. It's inside out. It's backwards, forwards. As Jez said a few weeks ago, each of us is being discipled every day by the world. The world's assumptions and values and goals and aims are being pressed upon us at work, at university, at school, online, and all around us. Our culture is telling us to love and to desire things that will make you valuable and that will give you contentment. Just a little bit more power, a little bit more success, a little bit more of X, Y, Z, and then you'll be content, but it's a lie. 1,500 years ago, St. Augustine said it more famously than anyone has ever said it. You stir a person to take pleasure in praising you because you've made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. All of the good things in this world that God has given us cannot fill the infinite cavern that is in the human heart. We are restless until we find rest in him because we were made to praise him. So the solution, friends, is not to love the things of this life less. 
power, success, friends, relationships. It's not to love them less, money, opportunities. It's not to love them less, it's to love God more. This, is what, uh, this was the breakthrough for Augustine in his confessions. The breakthrough to a restless heart is not to deny the things of this world, but to channel our desires toward rest in God. Augustine in his confessions gives a moving and honest account of how he tried to find contentment in academic success. Theatre, famously thieving pears, being of the gang, excelling in rhetoric, pleasing his parents was one of the things he tried to find contentment in. Many sexual indulgences, that was his great vice. Friends, a common life with Christians, a wife, a child, a concubine. And he found his heart was always restless because everything in this life, he said, is transient and passing away and ultimately it will be ended with death. And there's only one being who is not ephemeral and uncertain and beaten by death. And that's the lover of our souls. Augustine calls him my sweetness. My delight, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is the wonderful thing. When we love God first, our love for other things and people is purified. And we can actually enjoy them without asking them to do something that they can never do for us, which is fill the infinite cavern in our soul. You see, the reason we can't enjoy our relationship and our things and our success and our money, we actually often can't enjoy it, is because we try to to make it do something it was never made to do, which is give our souls rest. But when our soul has been given rest in God, we can actually have an open hand to these things and enjoy them when we have them and not panic when we don't have them. And we don't have to resent those that have them. We don't have to be jealous of others that have them when we don't. We don't have to be angry and annoyed at God when we don't have them. As Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content in every and every circumstance, whether I have plenty or I live in want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So Tim Keller summarizes the message. Here then is the message. Don't love anything less. Okay. Instead, learn to love God more. And you will love other things with more satisfaction. You won't overprotect them. You won't overexpect things from them. You won't be constantly furious with them for not being what you'd hoped. Don't stifle passionate love for anything. Rather, redirect your greatest love toward God by loving him with your whole heart and loving him for himself, not just for what he can give you. Then and only then does contentment start to come. What is the path to true contentment? Our futile attempts to find contentment have to be exposed by Jesus. We have to let him into our hearts. He has to hear the selfish ambitions of our hearts. And he has to hear the jealousy and the anger. But we don't have to fear because he's gentle and lowly and he's not coming to hurt us. He's coming to set us free. To do that, you'll have to expose our hearts and that will be painful but he has healing balm for each of us. Then our desires must be reordered by Jesus. He wants to teach us how upside down, inside out, and backward forward the kingdom is like and teach you how to live in it so that you stop valuing the things the world values and start valuing what he values. And that doesn't happen overnight. These are the 12 disciples and they still haven't figured it out. We will be on a journey of discovering this upside down, back to front, inside out kingdom to the day we die. And we'll be constantly feeling the pressure on our hearts to value the things of this world and champion the things that the world champions rather than value and champion the things Jesus 
champions. He's not telling us to love the things of this world less. He's teaching us to love God more. He's reordering our desires. And he'll do it to the day we die. But then thirdly, our greatest love then must be for Jesus himself. Verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Just as the Son of Man. Jesus is putting himself now in the spotlight in front of his disciples, just as the Son of Man. Jesus takes these selfishly ambitious, restless, angry, jealous disciples and their mother and calls them together and says, let me tell you what the Son of Man is like. The Son of Man is a title from the Old Testament book of Daniel. It describes a figure who would appear one day with all of God's power and glory to reign over the entire universe. Daniel said that the Son of Man was one through whom all God's plans and purposes would be fulfilled and it would be appropriate to worship this figure, a figure with divine power and eternal rule. In the mentality of our world, the more power you have, the more people that serve you. You're at the top of the ladder and everyone in business language reports to you and does your bidding. You can see the organizational charts of who's at the top. The power, you have the power so people serve you, not Jesus. The son of man, the one who has all authority over heaven and earth. The one by any metrics should be served. The one who's at the top of the ladder, he says the whole point of being the son of man and having all the power is to serve. He's the one whose sacrifice is not in spite of his power, but the very expression of his power. And how did he come to serve? He says he came to serve by dying for us. His death on a Roman cross would be like a death like no other, one that would benefit us because it says he died as a, a ransom for many. What does a ransom mean? Jesus' death is of service because his death is a ransom. This means that Jesus doesn't make just audacious claims about himself, that he's the son of man. He makes audacious claims about us that we are enslaved and need to be ransomed out of our slavery. We are held captive. When he said his death was a ransom for us, Jesus claimed that we are not free, that none of us are our own masters, that we are enslaved. And we're not free. How do we know? Because we never find contentment. We're enslaved. There's something that's got control over us, a good gift from God that we've tried to make an idol, a perfect thing that will fill the cavernous hole in our hearts and we think if we get it, it will... And we're enslaved to that thing and it has a power over our life and it makes us restless. And our sharp emotional reactions of jealousy and anger reveal just how enslaved we are. In our more sober moments, we know we're not the versions of ourselves that we want to be and that we sense we were meant to be. We can sense our hearts have turned away from God and have twisted in on themselves and our desires are disordered and now we're distorted versions, Augustine's language, of who we really say. He says, I'm dislocated within myself now, Augustine says. And we can't get out of it. We need a ransom. We need someone to buy us out of our slavery. So Jesus' death represents the necessary payment that we've gotten ourselves into. Sam Albury says, death is not just simply the natural expiration of our lives. It is a form of spiritual reckoning. 
Death is more than physical, it's spiritual. And it's that deeper spiritual death that Jesus has come to set us free from as he takes our sin upon himself by absorbing in himself all our distorted, selfish ambitions and sin and rebellion. He pays our penalty and he invites us to receive a new life and those famous words on the cross, it is finished. You can rest. You can stop striving. You can give up and let him fill. And by his spirit, the living water, fill the cavernous hole in your heart. It is finished. So how do we find freedom as disciples of Jesus to find contentment every day? We reflect on him just as the son of man. He becomes the object of our affections and our desires. His cross becomes a thing that captivates our souls and wins our hearts afresh as we think of him saying to our striving souls, it is finished. I was the ransom I paid. Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I'm gentle and lowly of heart. When we see Jesus loving us more than he loved his life and being willing to die as a ransom to win our freedom, he becomes our greatest love, and our hearts will rest, truly rest, rest eternally. Augustine was right. You stir a person to take pleasure in praising you because you made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until it finds rest in God. May we learn the secret this morning of being content in all circumstances because we know the object of our affections is Jesus and he really can fill the deep cavernous void in this life and in the life to come. Let me pray and we'll invite the band back. Father, we thank you for these moments to reflect on a story that reveals not just James and John and their mother's hearts, but our hearts. We say sorry that so often we run after the good gifts of this world as if they're going to satisfy us and complete us, and yet we're always just enslaved. We're never set free. So forgive us, Lord, because our restlessness reveals how we've turned from you to other things. But thank you for your gentle and lonely heart that you want to win us back and woo us back. I pray you'd set me free. I pray you'd set my brothers and sisters free from the things that hold them down and stop them being content. And may you become more and more, day by day, the great object of our affections and our desires. May we not love the things and the people of this world less, but learn to love you more with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.